It's a Daily Talk Show episode 348. And in the middle, Andrea Clark, welcome. What's up? What's happening? Everything. Everything. <laughs> uh, we're, we're basically Instagram friends. Love it. Well, we. Um, I actually saw, Andrea, you speak at the few business, what, what would you call that event? Financial Executive Women I knew, I knew it had an acronym, mm-hmm. but, I, but I couldn't nail it. But yeah. I saw you um, deliver a keynote in Brisbane and it was very captivating. Was it? The room, yeah, the, the women loved it. And I was there, I was one of the only men in the room. I'm so glad you said that because I was feeling donuts when I was up there. Really? Like nothing. Some well, audiences give you nothing and that was tough because the room was weirdly set up, if you remember. It was like, you know, it was like 180 degrees and as a speaker that's disconcerting because yeah. you can't keep an eye on the time and you can't kind of engage with the audience properly so it was a room full of accountants or lawyers um just a room full of highly excitable people <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah so the time what i loved was um it kind of blew me away because in your book future fit you the first chapter you go into your time that you spent in places like iraq mm-hmm. which it's crazy. I thought we were on the front line here in Abbotsford. <laughs> yeah. You were really on the front line. Which I love that your book you 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 blend this um, you know you blend these personal stories with these sort of practical take homes mm. on what it's like for the future of work, mm. which hence the name Future Fit. It sounds like you've read at least the first chapter. Which no, I'm really impressed. As with. two gronks who are pretty bad at reading, I guess through, I was, I, we were surprised we got yeah. through half in a bit over a day. Yeah. Mm. And that's um, that's some fast reading for the both of us. Nice. Even even my girlfriend Bree was shocked to see me. I had my pencil out and I was reading it, and it was like, yeah, it's, it's a thing. People are highlighting, underlining, taking notes, and mm. you know the highlight is back. People, yeah. <laughs> and so um, what what I loved is just hearing that you lived and worked in DC, mm. and. All I know of DC is from what I've seen in uh, what, um, House of Cards, House of Cards yeah. and um, Jason Bourne when he visits it's really Washington DC. Is <laughs> it's that totally similar? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can't tell if you're being sarcastic <laughs> no, or not. No. I am a little bit, but, it, <laughs> but I love watching the opening credits, especially to House of Cards, because I know all of those places, and mm-hmm. it's really bizarre to watch a show that is so captivating. And you you know this you know where they're shooting. It's yeah. Bizarre. Well, Capitol Hill, um, mm. little suburb right next to the White mm. House. Is that mm. where you lived? Yeah, that- I was I was thirteenth uh, and N, so I was only about, you know, um, five blocks from the White House. So I would literally, you know, I'll never forget. I was on the top floor of a building, and I would wake up in the morning, and Marine One would just be cruising past, mm. you know, with the backup Marine Two and Three in case Marine One got shot down. So, oh. um, and you never knew which one the president was in. So, who was the president at that time? Obama. Okay. Yeah. So I was in there from the Bush to Obama years, and um, but there was always so much happening in that particular quadrant. I was in the northwest quadrant of DC, and and that was that was where the action was. So whenever there was an evacuation on Capitol Hill or a bomb threat, you would know about it because it's literally next door. Mm. You made the transition from being a journo to sort of more communications yeah. style stuff. How do journalists or your fellow fellow colleagues? see that type of career transition? That's a great question and I'm still trying to figure it out. I don't know if no one is telling me because <laughs> they, they think that I should have stayed you know, in my, you know, in my job. But the transition for me has been so much more rewarding than I thought it would be. Mm. I, I've always loved to tell the backstory. I love the story. I love connecting with people and having them share their stories in a way that's compelling mm-hmm. for the audience, obviously. Mm. So for me, moving from journalism into comms 
it's the same the same rules apply. It's mm, the same yeah. theme. I'm still telling stories and helping people tell the best version of their stories to connect with their audiences. It, it's simply a different context. Yeah. So, but the the theme is still the same, and that's been a theme that's been continuous through my career. Yeah. I've had some interesting avenues um, in my career. Which we, we don't need to get into, but oh, uh, really? Are you sure? <laughs> well, you've got, you've gone from stripping to PT. No, to I went from PT <laughs> to, to stripping. Fuck, you did to, it that way. <laughs> to radio yeah. to now hanging out with you, Gronks. But um, I always think about like, uh, like I remember when when I was a stripper, I was like, how do you, you really were a stripper? Ha- yeah. I, I was. Yeah, I was like on a um, big stage show, travelled around New Zealand. Um, it's it's not that commendable, really. I mean, your your career is much more <laughs> commendable is, than mine. I'm sure that you have a level of executive presence after <laughs> yeah. I testing a, it out with the girls. <laughs> I learned a lot um, about the world when I was 19. But <laughs> but I, I think about um, you know in in your book you're talking about being in a plane coming down mm-hmm. to land in first chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in I got past the first chapter. <laughs> I'm not sorry impressed with you guys you ca- it's captivating you're, wanna, com- you're coming down yeah. into this war zone yeah and you're nose diving but i was thinking you, you did mention kind of what what you were thinking at that moment but mm. i i think about people over in those areas doing jobs like you and 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 i think about what's the story like how do you do you do you look at what you're doing and going how have I ended up here? Like, Oh, for sure. Every day. What are the steps? And what are the and, steps and to end up there? Specifically the morning that I was on that UN charter flight out of Amman. And I I flew into Amman from, from DC and had the night there before I was getting on the plane. And it was the weirdest feeling because the night before in the hotel I was on my own and I was thinking, well, I don't know, what do you do the night before you're going into Baghdad? I guess, mm. you know, do I write some notes in case something goes wrong. I made sure that someone had a decent headshot of me in case, <laughs> you know, I was going to be a headliner, like missing or something. Yeah, um, yeah. Please just don't use a shit photo of me. Yeah. <laughs> Media tend to, though. They find the oldest oh, yeah. one on file. I don't know how that sort of and happens. I'm the person who used to do that, yeah. so I'm across it. Yeah. Anyway, so I was in a hotel room the night before thinking, well, I guess I'm just going to hope for the best. And when you, I think when you commit to a job like that, it's important to – to be really at peace with what you're doing mm. in a way and and be convinced that that you're doing it for the right reasons. Otherwise mm. you couldn't you couldn't do it. But it was interesting that morning I was went out to the airport and got on the plane and I was like, where's everyone else? And the and they were like, you're the only passenger. I'm like, I'm the only passenger <laughs> on this charter flight into Baghdad. Um it already already have, you know, um, my mind was already going fairly crazy with that because it just was weird it was yeah. just weird silence on there on my own thinking yeah how did I get here yeah. like what what were the steps how do you um, pack for something like that what do you bring look packing is a sport as yeah. far as I'm concerned yeah. <laughs> um I excel at packing uh-huh. and um I you know I was carrying a pretty small bag so it was just basics because apparently the flak jacket was going to be supplied to me on landing yeah yeah so that was the extra stuff um but yeah I have those moments I have those moments a lot and still do how did I get here and it's a non-linear path mm. but um, I guess part of it is, um, I mean, I knew I wanted to get out of journalism. I had a fairly, um, had a fairly strong experience on the way to work in DC one morning. I was walking past a newsstand going into the Al Jazeera Bureau, Al Jazeera English Bureau, where I was working at the time. And uh, I didn't pick up a newspaper. I didn't pick up the New York Times for the first time, like ever. Mm. I looked at it on my phone and I thought, I, st- I literally stopped and thought, if I'm a working reporter and I'm looking at the times on my phone, mm. what does that mean for everyone else? Yeah. And what does it mean for the industry? And that was literally the day where I walked into the newsroom 
and started looking for another job. And I'd always been fascinated and 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 felt obligated to contribute to human rights in some way. And so, uh, literally a month later, I found myself. Um, I was fortunately poached out of that by an amazing mentor of mine, Rick Santos, and uh, he got me into a major aid group. And, and a month later, I was packing a bag. For, for Baghdad. So it was all very real. And mm. you can't, once you're on that train, you can't stop it. And yeah. I wanted, I, I actually, I did a master's in international security studies and defence studies because I wanted to be a war reporter. But coming through the Gulf War, uh, watching the first and then second Gulf War, it was obvious that, you know, when you're embedded, there's a certain amount of propaganda that goes along with that. Mm. So I felt I couldn't, I wasn't going to pursue it as, um, as a standalone career because you know that you can only contribute so much yeah. when you're, when you when your day is being governed by the military. So, mm-hmm. Uh, I was, I was not unhappy at all about going into that situation as an aid worker because at that point in my life I felt like I could contribute more to what was going on. Is there a sense of helplessness when you are writing about these big world issues? Because I feel mm. like with even thinking about climate change and oh, all these yeah. big things, I'm sort of like I have two thoughts, which is mm. like oh, I'm going to change my light bulb and mm. buy a keep cup and then the other side is it's like, so we're going to be fucked by something mm. and so I'm just going to sort of <laughs> yeah. like not stress about and it. it's going to hurt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and w- where do you fit on the, the spectrum of hope? I'm, I'm really optimistic yeah. about the future. I like to think that human beings are going to be a lot more proactive mm. about saving this planet and mm. as someone who has seen abject poverty mm. and been, you know, deeply affected by it, they are – that is the demographic that's got to be impacted first and – um, you know, I, I think that I think we're going to see a swing back towards people giving more of a shit mm. because this climate emergency is real. I do think that that there is going to be an awakening to some degree on that, and I think that you know there will be incremental action that will lead to you know a far greater movement because we have that urgency mm. that I think is hitting us in ways that hasn't necessarily hit us before. Your business career CEO, mm. um, you're helping people be the CEOs of their own okay, career. Great, yeah. Have you felt throughout your career that you've had control of it? I've had absolutely no fucking idea, <laughs> like what I've been doing most of the time, to be yeah. honest with you. Um, look, I, when I got sacked from that job mm-hmm. when I was in Iraq. I basically, and this is all on the record um, in the Washington Post, but I you know, flagged a fa- fairly major misappropriation of funds mm-hmm. um, at the time. And so I got walked from that job without knowing at the time that's what mm-hmm. it was about. And so... Um, that was the whole catalyst to me thinking, okay, well, how can I future-proof myself? How can mm. I make sure that I can always stay in business as mm. an individual? What does that mean in terms of my my skill my skill set? What's missing? How do I modify that? And then how can I empower others? How can I create a business that essentially empowers others to always be in control of their career and never mm. feel that level of vulnerability of being you know, involved in a restructure that doesn't shake out mm. really well for them. Yeah, I heard a phrase that I feel like has only really come into fashion the last couple of years, which is that you should stay in your own lane. Mm-hmm. I guess like your that story that you talk mm-hmm. about, um, it speaks of like sort of the suppression of only staying in your own lane, doing your, your job, mm-hmm. sort of not identifying the things around you that you might not agree with. The learning that you went through with being sacked, you know, send, sending the email, doing all that sort of stuff, what did you actually take away from that experience? That the standard you walk past really is a standard that you accept in your mm-hmm. life, regardless mm-hmm. of what part of your life that, that is. And in reflection, I'm really, I'm totally, I'm okay with yeah. taking that action. Mm-hmm. It wasn't 
our job was to save lives. Yeah. It was life and death on the other end of, you know, the, re- the recipients of the funding of microfinance grants or food security or, um, you know, emergency measures that they, you know, all of that mattered. It mm. mattered a lot more than a major organisation sending their staff to, to six-star retreats to, yeah. like, talk about <laughs> team building. Um, I as fun as they are. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I wasn't okay with that. I, yeah. I didn't think there was any way to run an organisation, specifically a non-profit that was being funded by the American taxpayer who yeah. at the mm. time were wondering what we were doing yeah. in Iraq as well as not even having fixed New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. So, yeah. you know, we had an extra level of um, compliance, I felt, around the responsibility to spend US taxpayers' money and to spend it in the right way. And you really you painted the picture in the book mm. seeing millions and millions of ca- dollars in mm. cash. Yeah, wall to wall. What was that experience like? Look, as a reporter, I've walked into drug busts mm. where I've seen – piles of cash and that's just on victoria street coming yep. into yeah. <laughs> so you know, as a reporter you're thrown into these extraordinary situations you're often meeting people on the best or worst days of their life mm. um but i distinctly connected that with mm. an experience i had um chopper you know being in a chopper going out to somewhere um walking and meeting detectives and seeing just like just bags of cash mm. along the wall. So when I walked in, that wasn't the first time I'd seen it, but not at that scale. It was literally piled to the ceiling. Mm. And I remember thinking it's just got to be tens and tens of millions of dollars and where's the security around this? So all a bit loose, if you know what I mean. And so you sent an, an email mm. writing out the concerns that you had. What was the thought process of clicking send? And did you understand? understand what that would potentially lead to? I had no hesitation in sending yeah. the email because uh-huh. it was to what I it was to my boss, yeah. uh, not realising a bit naive at that, that time, not realising that my email was probably being monitored uh-huh. um, by other people in the in the organization. But the email was essentially mm-hmm. around, you know, the core of the email was around concern about what we were spending at, you know, at staff retreats. Um, it was more about the overall spending mm-hmm. um policy yeah is it a trick like the people enjoying these you know this money being spent on them like mm. i mean everyone is uh, contributing to the problem at that point yeah. right and and so at, at this particular context it was an all-staff retreat where we were all bussed away to this you know the six-star resort in in pennsylvania and i didn't want to go because i didn't want i didn't want to spend two or three straight days with my colleagues. And you got um, free iPods, didn't you? We got free iPods, And that yeah. would have been like 2008 or something? Yeah, or well, yeah it was, and they were a big deal. Yeah, 2008, yeah. I think yeah. the iPod video was just sort of yeah. coming into – not to <laughs> so make it too much on that. It was an exclusive thing. Yeah. So, you know, the number two concerns I had. Number one, the cost of this particular resort because it was, you know, three dollars $400 a room per mm. person, 300 staff. Mm. So, for me, that was fairly reckless spending and I didn't know what the rules were in terms of, you know, when you won a tender, you had a certain amount for staff um, – you know, whatever, but I, I just didn't, it just felt wrong. Everything about mm. it felt excessive and and certainly um, decadent in the environment that we're in. So I, that was my email. It was really about that. And it was quite specific in, you know, in, in how I felt that could absolutely lead to a reputational crisis for the business, yeah. which it did. And then you look at 2019 and what's mm. happened with the banks here in oh, Australia. Yeah. It's all about trust. Um, you know, <laughs> what what do you see as, like, say, as an external provider, mm. I've worked with not-for-profits before and you mm-hmm. see moments of, like, guys, you're not doing this the right yeah. way. There's real inefficiencies mm. and sometimes you're at the 
that rewards you based on mm. financially because it's like I wouldn't be doing it this way, I'd do it this way, but there's a bunch of – they've got a bunch of processes in that, the way they do it. What do you think we have as – uh, for our clients mm. to be able to communicate in those moments of like, hey guys, these internal processes aren't great. It's not about what we could do. Mm. It's about what we should do. Mm. What, what's, what should we be doing? How should we be doing business? Mm. I think everyone should be asking that question. And if, if anyone is in a situation where they can see something is not going right, and this came up at a conference yesterday, you know, if you're, you know, the question is, how can we charge dead people for superannuation fees? It yeah. should be, um, what should we be doing in yeah. this situation yeah, yeah. that is is not going to lead to, you just, it's all about doing the right thing. It's mm. so simple, but but we get so, um, you know, we get caught in this web of compliance and governance and and hierarchy. And, and I think that we all have a responsibility to be bold and to lead through that in a way that is, you know, authentic to the purpose of our own work and authentic to, you know, the, the intention of the business across mm. the wider community. It's really simple. Yeah. Just do the right thing. When you were in DC, you, uh, you were covering um, what happened at Virginia Tech. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I were reading in bed last night and she, she was amazed at uh, the ability of, uh, you know, a reporter being able to sort of shift or hold those emotions, mm. which we all feel. You're a monster mm. if you don't feel emotions when you go to a tragic event. But I know as being someone who's worked on the radio and reporting on things, yeah. you kind of – your sensitivity, you mm. need to put it down yeah. to deliver what you need to. Have you found that you have – that you've been – you've carried over that ability to sort of shut aside the sensitivity? Or do you need to work on that as someone who spent a lot of time reporting – are you now, you know, feeling that muscle that you've trained to go, mm. I'm in this, I, it's all about, you know, facts and working out what's happening? I think that most reporters would say anytime you work, you walk into a trauma or mm. into a tragedy, you, you absolutely have to in that moment put your feelings in a box and just mm. because the focus is to focus is to get the story and not in an insincere way. But when I was covering the Virginia Tech shooting, I really felt like that for me was a turning point. I didn't feel like it was... I didn't feel like it was respectful of of um, people that I was interviewing because it was such a parachute in get what I needed and mm. then get out and that was my job. But that was the moment where I felt I'm not really sure if this is right for me. It's clashing with my personal values and ethics about you know the general respect level I should have for people in any mm. context. So, but nevertheless, it was my job to you know to interview people and do a live cross until Mike Amor turned up, um, who was a bureau chief at Channel 7 mm. at the time based in Los Angeles. But I um, have always found a way to mm. process. I've always processed. There's plenty of downtime you have as a reporter. Yeah. You have you know, have these short bursts of e- extraordinary activity and mm. really intense activity, but then you'll find yourself on a stakeout for 24 hours waiting for Shane Warne and Liz Hurley or something, yeah. you know, really compelling <laughs> like that. Um, it or does sound appealing. Like I, yeah. I do resonate with a bunch <laughs> of, of what you're saying. You would every find it any sort, anything that's sort of a stakeout or like I, there was a time <laughs> where I was seriously stalking guys. <laughs> considering yeah. even, even when you've the, got a news camera, it's not stalking. Yeah, um, exactly. But there's plenty of opportunity to process emotion and yeah. certainly flying there's something that altitude does i think to to many of us but you know i have had plenty of moments and after that trip from iraq i went to um tbilisi in georgia that was to to august 2008 which was the same week the russians were invading so things were still on fire when Mm -hmm. we got there it was really serious and we went to an orphanage um that was full of mentally and physically disabled kids and that was it was pure heartbreak there's Mm -hmm. no other way to describe it and i walked out of that orphanage and 
my phone rang and it was my boss saying, can you get on a plane and uh, go to Kabul? We need you to go to Afghanistan. And I said, I've never, ever turned down an assignment in my life. And Mm. I said, Rick, I'm getting on a plane. Mm. I'm going back to Washington and I don't want to speak to anyone for 10 days. And... You know, plenty of downtime, plenty of cr- like plenty of process crying. Like there's yeah. the I call it there's the ugly cry, and then there's the process cry. Yeah. Right, the process cries when you're processing whatever's gone on, and, and I've had plenty of those days because mm. you know I've needed to through this career, and I'm mm. sure other reporters have their own outlet. Um, but it, when you when you soften in moments that are where you have real silence, it just it appears, and you don't, you can't fight it because if you if you fight it, it's going to manifest in a much more destructive way was it like opening the door when you virginia tech that first real realization internally that it's clashing with your values totally is it like you can't go back each one then moving forward is same feelings coming up you just lose a certain Mm. um you just lose ignition Mm. for the story when you land on a site you know it's you're in this supercharged mode where and in that case i had you know i had to get there grab sound bites and file back but then I, i had to go back, to, dropped stuff to the hotel, came back. And at that time I had 90 seconds, probably less than, probably a, a 60 seconds, stepping out of the car, stepping in front of the camera and going live to Ian Ross in Sydney. And that was really, I was really stressed out. I was It was serious high anxiety for me because it was blowing 40 knots. The lights were smashing over. There, it was a totally chaotic environment. And I'd never seen a sea of live, of live trucks. That was a, it was a bigger story mm. in the US at the time. At the time... The you know the unfortunately the the largest the largest shooting n- mm. number of people dead at the time so you know you turn up to this this sea of live eye trucks with in total chaos and you have to make it work and that was um you know that was not mm. that was the moment where I thought I'm talking to people who are in medical shock and that is not the right thing to do mm. just as one human being to another so what can I do perhaps on the other side of the camera that's going to be more fulfilling for myself and and more helpful to the people on the ground because mm. that, that's what was happening people walking around in, in medical shock how do you um, stop trivial trivializing those types of situations so say when you're in a war zone mm. and you have the support of security mm. and you've got your um, you know, bulletproof flak jacket on, you've got all helmet. of those, the helmet, all Becker. those sorts of things. Mm. Uh, how do you reconcile that, that uh, whilst you're entering these areas, these are places where people are living and experiencing mm. and, and don't have the luxury of that sort of support? By meeting as many people as, as you can. Mm. I certainly made that my business to meet as many locals who were either locally engaged by the group or were um, living inside the compound mm-hmm. because we were in a, a compound that was stretched across about four city blocks. It was surrounded by 300 locally engaged Iraqi guards along the perimeter and we had Shia militia launching RPGs from the back fence which literally was like 20 feet from my room. So yeah. it was really, really intense. It, you, there was no sleep. You couldn't get any sleep at all. And... Mm. So in the state of really high adrenaline constantly. But my I really felt the situation for me was calmed considerably by meeting and talking to local Iraqis and mm. hearing their stories and what brought them back to Baghdad to restart their business. And, 
you know, how their families um, were and what their hopes were for the future. Mm. So you've done quite a rebrand. Uh, yeah. <laughs> as, it, as I said, we're on the front line here in Abbotsford. Oh, yeah. yeah. But you, you, I guess it's like yeah. I look at sort of – I love the bit where you talk about rebrands because we love a rebrand here at the yeah. Daily Talk I've, Show. I've what do you love a, about a rebrand? Well, I've done a, a few in my life. Uh-huh. I used to be 120 kilos, used to wear snapbacks and all that sort of thing and then sort of Never changed again. my glasses and did a few other things. But – yeah, I enjoy the I enjoy the process of having a Pinterest board and like okay, yeah. I've I've actually got a few different versions of where I've done it. But mm-hmm. there's the vision, there's mm-hmm. the visual, there is the visual uh, rebrand. Point. Yeah, but then there's also the other bits too, which is mm. how you how you speak, how you uh, interact with people. Mm. In your book, you talk about uh, you know this sort of uh, leaning to apologising, you know, saying sorry in a conversation or things like that, how much of that is ingrained in you and it's like I won't fucking say sorry when I don't feel that way versus something that has been taught over realising that in these situations like, oh, I'm doing this. You mean me personally? Yeah. Well, I think that communicating with authority is something that I've learnt Mm -hmm. and reporting has been such a huge part of that. So, you know, the reason for starting the business essentially was that I – was obviously an on-camera reporter, mm-hmm. no problem communicating directly to the audience. But when I stepped off camera, I couldn't hold um, a, com- a you know a powerful conversation with my boss. Couldn't ask for a pay rise. Couldn't make any legitimate complaints. Couldn't communicate anything mm-hmm. with impact. And I felt that started isolating me pretty quickly. So I ended up, um, you know, essentially, uh, you know, um, leaving Channel Seven. I'm pretty unhappy about it because mm. I felt like I was bullied out over the course of 18 months. Um, I don't have any problem talking about that but not going too far into it because mm. for me what was most important was the response. So um, that was part of the, the process of me creating a program that helped everyone else around me communicate with authority. And that means understanding how we unconsciously undermine our authority through our use of language, our body language, um, how we structure our content uh, and certainly how we use our voice as well. So that for me, it was interesting that I had no problem communicating with authority while I was on camera, but in every mm. other context, I would play small, I'd play myself down and I, I would lose out of that situation. Well, what do you think it was? I was in an environment that wasn't supportive, that wasn't inclusive, that didn't encourage my development in any way. And, you know, news is uh, an ext- – I love it. It's such a dynamic environment. The mm. team – you know, the, I will never again feel um, what I did working in a news team. You know, that um, it's a powerful being – being in a highly effective news team is a really addictive thing. That's why it took me so long to leave. Yeah. And it's a very a very powerful way to hone problem-solving skills, all, all kinds of skills at the same time. But, you know, broadly stepping back, I, I wasn't necessarily in an environment that supported my – development so that that lead that led me i didn't even know what culture was the word mm. culture i didn't i hadn't heard that yeah. until about 2014 so mm. i was a bit of a late adopter to that to that only because it, culture wasn't something that was valued uh, as as a core pillar of a business in a, in a news operation so you know that led me to, to to pulling together a program that i felt could empower other people because you know when you're disempowered by not having a voice, that leads to so many other so many other issues. Mm. Yeah. I think you know the visual rebrand is one you can do overnight. Yeah, the internal <laughs> rebrand takes is, a lot longer. Is hard, yeah. and and I know you talked about you know uh, your core values, your purpose, like living in alignment with those, mm. which I've heard a lot in my life. But 
I think I'm now closer to living in the alignment mm. um, with my purpose and my values and, and it makes you feel good. How, what, what do you think if you had someone come to you and say, I need a rebrand, mm-hmm. Andrea, please help. Uh, how long is that process of changing the internal yeah. You know, how long and, what that that, e- and what does that even mean? I think we're constantly a work in progress and I like to think of it as a purpose-led pivot. Mm. So purpose-led pivot? I like that. I love that. Yeah. I do so, have personalrebranding.com, but I will get that too. Well, purpose-led <laughs> pivot. Mr. 97, can you grab that? Yeah. <laughs> if you were paying attention in Chapter 1, <laughs> yeah, no, it was I there. I like over. Yeah, yeah. No good pick up. <laughs> so pur- purpose-led pivot. So that, that's really about... You know, what What gives meaning to you? And what I love about the future of work is that I, I genuinely think it's an opportunity for us all to um, to be more connected to ourselves, to the work that we do and to our ability to deliver more meaningful work. So, um, so if anyone came to me wanting a rebrand, I, I would lead with well, what do you feel gives you meaning um, in the workplace? And what is that – what are the tasks? What are involved in those tasks? Mm. Is it talking to people? You know, is it – is it data entry? What do you love about that? You know, you've got to really dig. You've got to dig deep. Yeah. But I think we're constantly a work in progress, which is uh, a fantastic thing for all of us. Mm. What about having multiple personas, mm. and the idea of having a persona for work mm-hmm. and a persona for personal life? Should we be mates with our colleagues? I don't think there's any difference. I don't yeah. think there's. I don't. I don't make any distinction between work and and personal mm. because wor- there's no work life balance. It's it's just life balance. Mm. Um, and I don't know if – I think it's difficult to not be mates with people that you work with. Yeah. I think if you bring a wall down, that it's not going to allow you to connect with people around you and really get the best out of your team if you're leading a team. So mm. I think you've got to be – you've got to be your authentic self everywhere, yeah. 24-7. And and if you're trying to be anything but, that that will be mm. a brand issue for you. I mean, the hard thing is if you're working with people that you you don't – you're not inspired by – not mm. saying you guys. It sounds, like, <laughs> it, it sounds a bit like a retro. That's okay. <laughs> you morph into the people that you hang around. Well, I think that we are absolutely the sum value with the five mm. people we spend the most time with and that's why I love being surrounded by you know the fabulous Belinda Wall, who's my chief of staff and oversight committee, um, and Jen Adams, who's the most ex- you know fantastic facilitator. So mm. we, you know, and that's that's a process in itself because mm. you've got to you've got to find your tribe, you've got to stick to the tribe. And when people aren't, and, and when you feel like people aren't, you know, sort of gelling with mm. you, then it's okay. It's okay to let people go with love. That's fine. Because mm. um, we have to do that at different stages of our career. But yeah. it's so important to be to spend time with people who do inspire and motivate and encourage you and, and want to hear the good, the bad and the ugly. The movement of picking yourself is um, very ripe. Seth Godin, uh, I guess where are the – Picking yourself, yeah. In, in mm-hmm. the school of – Love pick, Seth. Love picking him. ourselves. Yeah. Um, something – and I've always kind of – I guess I've pushed back on those jobs where I'm working for someone. I've had my own business for many years, yep. uh, which has given me the f- the sense of paving my own path. My uh, my future is in my hands, mm-hmm. and I've felt disempowered working in corporate structures where you know mm-hmm. I, I can't do much. But mm-hmm. something in your book uh, that you mentioned was building that board team mm. at um board, what is it the, the board of directors the board of yep. directors which uh you know the people around that you yep. could sort of call upon yeah. should something go pear-shaped definitely and you probably have that structure already without really having formalized it mm. or you know given it a label but 
what I think is really interesting about the next 10 years is that the responsibility for finding, securing and delivering work will is shifting to the individual in ways that we haven't seen before. So regardless of whether you're in a big organisation and part of a machine or you're working on your own, it's up to you to to make it work for you and that involves absolutely having sponsors, mentors, advisors, mm. people who are on, you know, on your team, part of your crew who will give you unfiltered advice mm. and um, an encouragement and be able to talk through any issue that, that's important to you. I see it as sort of taking that power back in an environment mm. where you are being picked mm. but you're also picking yourself to know that if stuff goes wrong or, you know, I can call on somebody, we can send the troops out to get a new job, which we, is what look, you did. Yeah, look, we all need that support network and I was so fortunate when I lost my job in Washington to be surrounded by a group of really intensely diligent and 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 you know powerful women and I picked up the phone and I said hey guys uh, this is not a call I ever really expected to make but um, I am in I'm in real trouble I, I really need your help and I hope I never have to ask for it again so and when you have built sincere relationships and friendships over a period of time, people want to help. People love to help. If mm. someone called you and said, I need help, what are you going to do if mm. you really respect them? Of course you're going to pick up the phone and make calls or whatever you need to do. So it was, um, you know, that was a moment that I felt, um, you know, my having a network and a deep network really paid off. Mm. And it wasn't – and there's nothing insincere about calling people asking for help when you need it, you know, and, the, and you need to have the right people on your team. I mean, it's scary sometimes asking for help. Yeah. Oh, I think it was – I mean, I, I that was certainly a moment where I felt extremely vulnerable. I was in a foreign country with with a, a visa that was tied to my employment. So mm. I had the added pressure of having 10 business days to find another role. Otherwise, yeah. I had to leave the country. They mean they kick you out? Yeah, or you have to self you have to self manage way out of the country, but you can't overstay a visa. So yeah, yeah. because that it impacts your ability to work and apply for a green card and everything else. So I, you know, it was a high pressure. I, you know, I said in the book, I, I literally I just cried all night, and then mm. I woke up in the morning and said, "How am I going to? How am I going to handle it? Mm. Got to handle it." How did you deal with mourning the loss of that role, and how long did it take you? I was gutted because mm. it was such a great role. It was a dream gig, and I loved it. I loved the team, loved my cameraman, and loved the context. Loved also being able to help people and expose a much broader audience to the issues that we were covering. Mm. So we were raising you know, tens of millions of dollars for people who needed emergency aid on the ground. And that felt useful and Mm. that felt like I was contributing. So for me, that was the loss that I, um, beyond it being a great role, the main part of the role was helping, was connecting people on the ground to people in really, really high levels of office that could write checks for $200 million. Mm. So the impact that I lost there was um, I grieved for, for months, mm. yeah. Then I moved into um, another really you know intense role with the SAVDA for coalitions. So my job was to help lobby the US government to um, stop the genocide in, in Sudan. Yeah, so it was sort of one one trauma to another almost, but I, at least I still I still felt like we were contributing, and we did get that done. We had a UN, we had a US special envoy appointed to to Sudan at the UN General Assembly. So. You know, you want. To, I just felt like I'm still contributing. What happens when you get home? Like it's all quite. It's, it's, full it's a on. bit much. I couldn't handle it. It's full you on. I mean, it's yeah. a really, it's a very different environment. And I remember often coming home for Christmases. You know, coming home and and my sisters, I'd be like, so what? You know, what did you guys get up to this week? And they'd be like, something really, you know, small happened, mm. and 
And I'd sit there thinking, wow, I'm really, you know, I love, I just love the realness of that because, yeah. you know, maybe the, the toughest point of my week was looking through, you know, UN reports on, you know, on genocide or mm. something. And like photographs of when the first, the first people who came through the villages were burnt down mm. and, you know, you see it all in, in its total trauma. Or, you know, walking down the Senate Hart building and seeing Ted Kennedy or something extraordinary. Wow. And so and you so have, what, what happened yeah. when you got home? Were you, when you actually moved back to Australia... Um, <laughs> and lived a, a nice quiet life. Oh, it was really keep, difficult. Do you keep perspective? Like do you still, like if your um, Uber oh. Eats orders cold, <laughs> like do you think about all the the bad stuff in the world and be like actually shit's not oh, that. Oh, you always that, have to remind yourself that, that, yeah. that someone has it worse off. Yeah. And yeah. Um, But I, I had a really difficult transition. I mean I'm not going to bullshit you. It was really, yeah. really difficult. I came back the first four years at least. I was thinking, you know, maybe I should turn around and go back. Mm. Uh, I felt really um, isolated and mm. I felt like I couldn't really, you know, connect with anyone on a level that I that was important to me. I was going into the newsroom at Channel 7 doing stories and, you know, they were pretty light stories compared to what I was covering. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's no judgment there. It's just that I would prefer to be in a bigger environment, you know, uh, working on policy and things that impact, you know, people in, you know, in situations that are, you know, far less fortunate than, than those of Australia. Yeah. So, What did you learn about mm-hmm. ego? Throughout that time, I d- it's just not useful. Yeah, anywhere. Yeah, and I think that's you know that's part of what I've loved about being a reporter because you get thrown on onto so many into so many different contexts, mm. and there's no room for ego. There's mm. no room. You've got to be able to connect with people from all walks of life at any point during the day, and you've got to be able to transition between the Dalai Lama, you know, Bill Clinton, Oprah, and uh, and someone who has lost their business in West Virginia mm-hmm. or, you know, a coal, coal mining town. So you have you just transition between these really extraordinary levels of life and, and each one of them is so rich and powerful in their own ways. And and it's it's always been my job to get, you know, to get that backstory out of people. And I and some of my favourite stories are talking to, you know, everyday everyday Aussies who mm. have lost everything in a house fire or something, this, yeah. you know, you showing up on the worst possible day of their life, mm. and there's just there's just no room for ego. So the four yeah. years where you were feeling isolated, mm. now looking back, if you were to create a listicle of mm. the top tips for not being isolated <laughs> in your career, what sort of what sort of advice do you have or thoughts do you have on isolation? I think that's part of the process of finding your own tribe. I think you've got to go through, you know, there's no shortcut. Mm-hmm. There's no shortcut to being content and really happy with yourself. Mm. You've got to go through that process and and I certainly went through that process in resettling. And I made a conscious choice to to start a business and to follow it through no matter how painful it was. And you know, in terms of would I change anything? Not necessarily because it's led me to this wonderful place where I have um, I have a really dynamic small business and I work with two of my favorite people and the work that we do is really meaningful and has big payoff for mm-hmm. the businesses that we deliver into. So I, would I change anything? No, but I think for anyone coming back from a fairly big stint overseas, it's it's a challenge. And, you know, part of the challenge is something that you can't do anything about. It's just that Australia is so isolated from the rest of the world and yeah. and you feel you you really feel that disconnect every day. But the, my answer to that is now, you know, taking three, four overseas trips a year and working 
in London, working in LA and staying connected with my networks. Mm. So I keep that alive and, and I keep my inspiration alive. We've been talking about the tribes mm. and building the people around mm. you. And um, what I, I love where you said the old school networking is dead. Mm. It's over. What, what is, for people that might not be across the different types of networking because they mm. just think there's one type of networking. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's just, uh, you know, in the coffee room talking to people. Yeah. What, what is the old school networking and what is the new school networking? I think the old school networking is something that most people tend to dread and that is walking into a room and, you know, exchanging business cards and just mm. hoping for the best, having really awkward conversations. Uh, what I think is going to dominate, especially as our workforce moves to a far looser and less structured environment is tapping into those dormant ties. So Dr. David Burkus has a great line about show me a friend of a friend and I'll show you your future. So essentially the people that you've been connected with through school and university, mm. reconnecting with with those old ties and because you're a qualified lead, you mm. know, and it's not an insincere thing to do. So I'll give you an example uh, which I wrote about. There's a – I grew up with um, – uh, a girl called Candice Trelaw, who's so terrific. And we didn't uh, we didn't go to the same school, but we were sort of in the same neighbourhood. So we used to go night clubbing and, you know, everything together. And I ran into her at an event 25 years la- – no, not 25 years later, 20 years later. <laughs> and um, maybe 15. Um, <laughs> and she was working in supply chain at Telstra and she said, I'd love to bring you in and run your program mm. with the group. And that has – you know, it was incredible because – she already trusted me. We had that established relationship. She knew what I was doing worked. And so there wasn't the process that you would normally go through mm. that lead time and that, you know, that qualification period that you would go through sometimes for a year or two with a business before they brought you in. So that's what I mean about reactivating the old ties. I think mm. that our existing network is going to be a lot more useful to us. And that's a network that we don't have to, you know, cold call or introduce ourselves to in a really awkward way. So I feel like that's a great that should be a great comfort to all of us. I think a lot of us want rapport now, mm. you know, mm. like you meet somebody and you want that mm. trust and and it does take time. It does. Yeah. It's not I, transactional. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I don't think humans I don't know if we like transactional exchanges. We want meaning and that's that's part of the deal. The part of this is being connected to yourself and 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 having meaningful exchanges that really add value. Is there a mutual value exchange when you're talking with someone or is someone just trying to sort of take 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 from yeah you. the push and pull and it's you yeah. know the bullshit filters yeah. greater than ever for most people yeah. on linkedin you know the the inboxes mm. that yeah. you get it's just like so impersonal it's it's, tr- it's transactional it's yeah. hard and so how do we utilize these platforms mm. to do this new age networking well i think you've got to map your own network and figure out who are the people who are the people that you went to school with yeah. and you went to university with and where are they now look them up on linkedin and see what they're doing you know and just see if you can reconnect over an alumni event or mm. over something that might be where there might be a mutual value exchange but again when you reconnect with someone you want that to be meaningful mm. so find something find something that's useful to talk about not just hey how's it going i know like i grew up with some great people who are doing great things now and i've and i've battled those feelings of like uh, reaching out they might just think this thing but i know i've got value yeah and so what you're yeah. battling this internal you've got an internal fight happening you're telling yourself a story that may yeah. not be real. Yeah. So, you know, drop the story and drop that narrative in your own mind and, and you know, send them an email. But mm. you might – I mean, there are so many reasons why you guys could get in touch with people that mm. you went to school with. So. What, what do you think about people who, say, have gone to low socioeconomic schools or they're part of sort of a, 
a poverty cycle mm. within their their neighborhood that that don't have the support of say those alumni or mm. sort of other networks how do you transition if you're an 18 year old or 19 year old uh, how do you actually start to embed yourself into some of those networks? Do you I think, think that's really important and I would like to think that we, we all live in a society where we all have the same opportunity mm. for success um, and I think that, you know, if, if you find yourself in that cycle, I mean, I, part, of it, part of me thinks, you know, groups like um, the Y Group. Yeah. Uh, y Gap, was y it? Y Gap, or, yeah. Yep. So I think that finding groups like YGAP, which is a community of people and a very diverse community, mm. they're the kinds of communities that we want to be a part of because mm. that's where real meaningful connections are found yeah. and, and and real mentorship happens like yeah. quite organically. So I think it's about finding those one or two communities that you know you can feel a belonging to because there's a difference between fitting in and belonging. Mm -hmm. So, um, but that is a great example of a group that's doing inc incredible work in the community and yeah. can be a touch point for people from all walks of absolutely. life. Well, yeah. you even look at Reach and so our friend yeah. Jules, oh, Jules yeah. Lund of and course. to see oh, that that's a, a good example, yeah. right? And, and so I think, I think one of the challenges is the um, even communicating that part of mm -hmm. like going out, like mm -hmm. taking that first step, I think is... Well, look at 3D Deal. Yeah. He's from uh, – our intern from Canada, yeah. he's come across to the other side of the world. Mm. Um, he said something great in his um, post that we made a video about his mm. journey over here. But he, I think it was something along the lines of if you don't, if, if you don't ask, the answer is always no, yeah. mm. which is yeah. <laughs> profound, Dil. And isn't that the great thing? Isn't that the <laughs> profound? Totally. Um, and so true, but isn't that the great thing about, about social, mm. that you yeah. can – that there's no barrier to connecting with people mm. anymore. And if we're all internet friends here, actually. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. I met Josh through the internet. Yeah. Uh, I know. Uh, no, we're Basically. old school. We're old school. Yeah. But um, Mr. Ninety Seven, Three D Deal, yeah. us. You know. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, it's beautiful, really. Yeah. But uh, there is there is a <laughs> talking about that story that we all tell ourselves. I think that that is such a key part of this it as is. well. Um, we have a narrative that yeah. sits in the back of our mind and drives mm. behaviour. Yeah. So the breaking that often and reminding yourself that that story might not be, it, it's not real and not relevant. You're mm. a good storyteller. When are you telling yourself That's the wrong story? Like have you, do you, is it something that needs to be rewritten on a weekly or a monthly or is it something you need to reread in your own mind? Just generally? Yeah, I think mm. just, I think... If we're telling ourselves stories, mm. the story can shift without mm. consciously thinking we want to shift the story. Mm. And sometimes it can help us. Like, so say you you finish at a job. Mm. Say for the, I've found first year, there's a, a certain sort of uh, narrative. Yeah. And then you sort of, you know, it's sort of the rose-coloured glasses come off yes. and you realise how yep. shit the company was. Sure. Um, <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah. It was and there, then, not me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you, you, do definitely, you do definitely see that, right? Like I've yep. been lucky enough to work at a bunch of interesting companies and seeing the people leave and you sort of see the process of the start of it's just like everything's fucked and then yep. it sort of plateaus off to normal stuff. I mean, yeah, how, how do you reconcile the stories of leaving and transitioning from roles? Self-awareness, mm. I think... I think you've always got to be um, have a heightened sense of awareness in any situation, and and remind yourself that if a if if a situation is uncomfortable or if you're feeling discomfort, that's temporary. Uh, it's always temporary, but you've got to if you're exiting a business, you've mm -hmm. got to be you've got to be gracious about it because business is all about the long game. It's about relationships and yeah. it's about meaningful meaningful relationships. So you can't ever 
you can't ever spit the dummy. Mm. Um, you know, you've got to be an adult about it and and respectful and and respect that you know it just may not it may not be the right fit for you. But I think self awareness is everything and and observing yourself, checking yourself, observing your emotions and 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 often through that process alone you can figure out what story am I telling myself and does it match up with these other you know these other things that I'm seeing and feeling. Mm. Uh, I got excited reading um, oh, where you were saying about <laughs> audio. I mean, it's it's, it's very much because we're in yeah, the audio sure. game and how mm. it's you yeah. know double video. Well, t- mm. Tommy yeah. took out a different point than I did, but we'll get to that. Okay. Go on. Cool. Well, I mean, Gary V, you, you were mentioning yeah. Gary V. What mm. excites you about the future? In general, yeah, I guess across mm. you know what with all the research you've done for the book, because mm. well, you've and done your career, you've done stuff on like artificial intelligence. Was that right? Like yeah. from a technology standpoint, yeah. I think for me, th- the future work is so many things and so many confusing and ambiguous mm. things, like the cloud, metadata, mm-hmm. AI, robotics, etc. But for me, ultimately, the future of work is about talent, and it's about your talent and. And when I talk about talent, I mean the human skills, which I think will disproportionately advantage us all in our careers. So, you know, and I think that we have to look at them in new ways and upgrade our skills in ways that we have perhaps not considered before. So, and if you think about the environment that we're going into, you can see why that's going to matter. So mm-hmm. if you're going to get late, if you're in the in the gig exec economy, for example, and you're getting really short, sharp windows of FaceTime, um, uh, face-to-face time with the people that are hiring you, then you know that then then your reputation capital is going to be more relevant mm-hmm. across LinkedIn. Your comm skills have got to be short, sharp, compelling and sincere and warm when you have those moments of pitching yourself. Um, you know, you've got to be able to solve problems for a business that are new problems. Mm-hmm. You've got to be dedicated to your continuous learning. Uh, what excites me most about the future of work is that I really believe there's a new breed of worker emerging yeah. and that is someone who – prioritizes and is a master has a master's in the human skills mm. in addition to all of their technical skills because that's what it's going to be it's going to be about continuous learning leading through emergent conditions mm. and all the other and the other eight you know skills that I've written about I haven't synthesized this thought completely mm. yet but okay. I, uh, so I like that's the reason. ethos yeah. of this podcast yeah, exactly <laughs> so yeah that's the tagline so yeah exactly so I'm I'm curious to get your take on this so the stuff around apologize uh, not apologizing language. Yeah, yeah that type of stuff even mm. there's a there's sort of that push to don't work for free that not specifically in your uh, book but there's there's mm. certain language that's especially being used within sort of um uh, like sort of that business chicks women in mm-hmm. business and what i worry about is that some of the experiences that i've had and the things that have made me uh, personable law that has connected me with people have been some of against the advice that mm. we're hearing to uh, people who might have a handicap within an industry already. Yeah. Um, so I, I just wonder: uh, Are we going to? Are we potentially cre- creating a situation where people are cutting themselves off from opportunity based on bad advice? Sure, I think. The most important thing to know about advice is that it's autobiographical. Mm. People are giving you advice from their own experience and that is not always relevant or useful to you. Mm. So you've got to make that call in your own context. Yeah. It's as simple as that. Mm. You've got to go with your gut and you've got to read a situation, read a room effectively and do what you think is right. And there might be a negotiation in that. So you might do something for free, but in exchange you you might ask for something in return. Yeah. There might not be a financial exchange, but there might be something – 
you know, promotional or something yeah. else that's really valuable to you. Yeah, right? there's complexities, I think, in all of this stuff, which can sometimes yeah. be missed with that advice type you, stuff. You can't, you said, I think that you've got to assess things on a case by case basis and mm. figure out, you know, how could we make it work? You mm. can't, I, I don't think you can ever go into any discussion thinking, the only thing I want to do is financially benefit from this discussion yeah. because there are so many other ways that, that you can benefit through that relationship. And some of it too is going against gut instinct as well, I guess is part yeah. of it. So that uh, uh, willingness to apologise or whatever, that comes, I think, like I tend to do it a fair bit and I feel like in some parts, you know, talking about I'm not an expert in this or things like that. When you are? Yeah, well... I think that this this is the, this is where that line is. I think some mm. people will take this advice and maybe use it incorrectly mm. where it's like I feel that it empowers me to say if I'm in a room full of comms people and I'm specifically mm. talking from a video mm -hmm. perspective, I'm more than happy to say, hey, I know we've got a PR person on the call. Yeah. I'm not an expert in this area and then going to them. But you still have mm. – you still are an expert – yeah. At you know, at, a, at an aspect of yeah, comms, yeah, yeah. and I think it's important not to play yourself down by using self-diminishing or tentative language. Yeah. So I don't think that you would ever want to um, undermine your authority in a meeting mm. by by unnecessarily calling that out. Because yeah. I tell you, my hope is that every meeting I'm in, I'm I'm not you know I'm definitely not the smartest mm. person in the room, and um, but I would never I would never say that. I would never sort of acknowledge that. Uh, that I'm not an expert in something, I would mm -hmm. say my focus is this. Yeah. So you, you shouldn't preface a conversation by putting yourself down is yeah. my point. Because it's interesting, we, we hear constantly that uh, the US culture and mm. the, the way they communicate versus the Australian mm. self-deprecating, is, is it real from, from your mm. perspective? And, and was that learnt from being in Washington DC and having hard conversations? Look, I think Americans generally are, are very direct and mm -hmm. that's productivity driven. Yeah. I mean, they're in a highly competitive market of 300 million people. When you are competitive in a field and, and you get a job, you want to walk in and, and deliver in the best way possible. And that means that means communicating in a, you know, in a direct uh, but warm and sincere manner. Mm -hmm. And that's their conditioning yeah. generally as opposed to Australians who are in a far smaller market um, where it's a bit more parochial in a sense. Yeah. Um, no, I think the, the greatest influence on me has been simply observing the difference between my ability to deliver a news report and then, and then you know, the, the very big distinction between that and sort of off-camera mm. conversations. Um, so I think that that, that that was actually a greater influence than, than, than being around people in DC. But it was impressive and intimidating, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, look at Gary sure. V. You know, he's pretty sure, sure on, on what he does. Full yeah. on. And it's, it's inspiring. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, he's nailed it being in alignment with his values. Sure. And I think there's advice culture out there. You're really seeing, is that my phone? No, it's mm. an alarm. You're it's really seeing, like, awake. advice <laughs> culture is, you know, yeah. people giving advice when it's not asked. Mm. And you have the option not to follow. Yeah. So, and that's a great thing about but Gary. I can't help but follow. I know, but Gary <laughs> B, it's interesting because yeah. I find myself following him for a week at a time and then switching <laughs> off then following again and yeah. and then getting notifications because it just depends on what space I'm in. Mm. But sometimes I'll need a kick, I'll need a kick and, and that's sometimes where I'll get it from. So, you've got the option. Yeah, so I mean, from an Instagram, like who you follow on Instagram mm. or who you consume, if you talk about that, you know, five people that are closest mm. to you, I guess the... Uh, 2019 version is it's the people that you follow yeah uh, 
what is what's your method or system in who you follow and what you consume? I don't necessarily have a system. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely driven by people who create original content and have original original thoughts. Mm-hmm. So, um, and in fact, the way I found Belinda is I was going through Insta and it popped up in my you know a couple of years ago, and I remember thinking, "Wow, now this is an operator who is um, really." sophisticated in her use of language and ideas Mm. and concepts and of course and naturally so because she's a a brand expert at the time doing a lot of work for pwc so um i actually you know hit belinda up and said i really want to find a way to work together because that's the kind of i really valued that that original content and the ability to to think critically about um issues and to assess brands and figure out what is the tone what's the right tone of my brand that reflects me authentically mm. so in terms of who I follow it's it's really whoever I'm connecting with and I'm I'm obviously a very because I'm television very visual person I love a strong visual but I want mm-hmm. that I want some depth I want some depth in the content so mm-hmm. that that's what really drives me yeah are you excited about uh, creativity as a real um, currency in the future of work? Oh, creativity is is absolutely the last competitive advantage. If you're creative and original in the workplace, you will be noticed and mm. you will solve problems for businesses in so many different ways. I think a, a real challenge that business is facing is getting new products and ideas to market in a really complex environment. So you need people on the team that, that can think creatively and differently. And interestingly, one of the, the biggest stats that has jumped out of me, jumped out at me recently is um, a statistic around um, 80% of CEOs being, when it comes to threat to business, to their business, 80% of CEOs know that uh, or are concerned about an availability of key skills. And mm. when we look closer at that data, 77% of CEOs can't find people who are creative. So there's a huge opportunity alert for all of us. And you can imagine the impact that has on a business's ability to innovate. Mm. Um, well, do you think it's the people are scared of being and living in that creative space mm. because they don't think it's going to make them any money? Well, I think that cre- interestingly, you know, people who identify with being creative um, earn 13% more on average per household than, than people who don't identify mm. as creative. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> bring it. Bring it on. Um, let's get that to 20%. Yeah. So um, I think that businesses are trying hard to create the, the conditions mm. to generate creativity, but that doesn't always work mm. because you need to have the right people who are willing to be bold enough to share ideas and, con- and concepts that may backfire. So... For me, creativity is um, it's it's where we should be spending more time and allowing ourselves to to be much more you know much more vocal about ideas that we have mm. because we all know what it's like to sit around a table and think should I say that you know mm. I'm not oh, sure yeah. I'm not sure how that's going to land yeah um, you know you have that hesitation but that's the moment where you've got to take a risk yeah I remember in 2013 reading an article that was all about around a stat that people who have nicknames in the workplace make more money. Mm. And so I straight away started signing off all my emails as JJ <laughs> as sort of a tactic. Did How did it work for yeah, you? Yeah, it, did work. it worked. Yeah. It absolutely worked. So that was, that was great. Money just but, came. Yeah, exactly. It appeared on his desk. Exactly. Um, but what is, the, what is that balance between um, being likeable within a workplace, mm. being the, the mate and actually getting shit done and being professional? I think we have to give – you know, we have to be far more concerned with being respected than mm-hmm. liked. Yeah. And we all want to be liked and that's mm-hmm. fine, but that's not necessarily going to, you know, get you to where you want to be. Mm. You don't want to be seen as a pushover. So yeah. I think that when it comes to 
you know, pitching or any level of creativity or contribution you want to make. You've, mm. you've got to do it in a way, um, you know, that signals you, you, you know, respect. Yeah. I mean, the signal stuff I think is really interesting because mm. it plays in to that branding piece mm. and what people are saying about you. Mm. What do you think people say about you? You know, I, I hope, um, I hope just nice positive things. I don't know. I, I mean, Belinda can jump in here anytime she likes. But no, I like you answering I'm, it. This I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling super vulnerable uh, and no, awkward because I. Uh, what do you actually want? Because I guess that's part of it, yeah, which is sort of yeah. like it's uncomfortable to be like. Uh, the reason that I went from wearing snapbacks and having a crazy neck mm. beard all the time and wearing hoodies was because I was like, if I actually uh, dress like a creative director, I can yeah. actually like control yeah. my situation yep. better and actually have that respect. And it's, I'm not necessarily a videographer for hire. Mm. Uh, I'm a creative director. And you're within positioning a yourself up here. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so I think that a lot of people are uncomfortable with that, that sort of, because there is a l- level of, it, it, I guess we think it's a bit fucked up to be thinking about ourselves in that way. But you do because that is – it's everything. That perception is everything and mm-hmm. you can't control what people um, – how people respond to you. You can only control your own behaviour and, and you know, I sort of identify with that. And the, yeah. and a lot of work that I do is, is training, you know, leading ASX CEOs mm-hmm. to, you know, to communicate with authority and media train. And so – Often I find myself storming through, you know, marble lobbies in in heels and um, and the whole, you know, outfit. And I think great visual there. Yeah. Oh, storming through. Storming through. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm pretty much storming through mostly because I'm running late. And <laughs> uh, so I've got to be really conscious of of how people are how that's landing with people. Yeah. And you know, a great wake up call for me coming out of reporting was, you know, ditching uh, ditching certain fabrics and 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 ways of of, of dressing because. Mm-hmm it would be a real shutdown point mm. because I'm loud. And mm. so that coming towards you, storm, me storming down the hallway with this loud voice, it's really too much for a lot yeah. of people. So, mm. um, you know, but simply by ch- even doing something as simple as, you know, wearing flats and softer fabrics, you know, I feel friendlier. You know yeah. what I mean? So, um, and I really feel like I am a very warm person, but, but you know, I, I do keep a really, um, keep a, you know, we're really busy and, you know, I've said to people I'm not someone who, you know, I don't show up to networking events and things mm-hmm. because I'd rather be kind of reconciling stuff on zero. Yeah, or yeah. <laughs> there's, there's always something to do. But, you know, generally speaking, um, you know, I mean, I, I hope, I feel, um, I feel like I'm really true to my own brand, mm. I hope, um, which is, you know, someone who's dedicated to the growth of others. You talk yeah. about in the book about uh, resting bitch face. Yeah. Is, is that actually being something that you yeah. have to consider in the workplace or communicating? Well, I had to consider that when someone met me for, co- for coffee a couple of years ago and they said – and it was really funny because I'm always – I'm always so surprised at what people say to mm. me sometimes. Um, but this person said um, she was – I think she was an HR director and she said, look, I have to tell you that um, you are much friendlier. You look much friendlier in person as opposed <laughs> to your LinkedIn photo. And I was genuinely horrified. So, you know, I caught a photographer, got a new headshot that I thought was more approachable. That was a really valuable piece of feedback mm. to well, me. Did you so, do a bit of a – like a lean in approachable or what? how do you, <laughs> how do you look Did you more? show teeth? Just friendlier, yeah. just, you know, just friendlier. Um, but I – that was a real shock to me and I felt I was so grateful for that feedback yeah. because she said that is the best rest, resting pitch face I've ever seen yeah. and I thought that is not yeah. that is not that's not the signal that I want to send because I don't think it's me it's yeah. interesting yeah. because that is like an example of advice where 
you know, you can wear what you want, be you, all that sort of thing. But there is that thing of like when you are playing within a system, yeah. uh, it's, you know, like the, the bur- burqa in Iraq, you could have been like, oh, no, nah, that's not that's not me. I'm not going to wear it. That's a real quick way to get fucked up, right? Well, you you've know, got to meet your environment on. halfway. Yeah. You've got to, you've got to literally meet it halfway and be respectful of whatever that environment looks like. I felt like a fish out of water in the big corporate environments mm. where we've done work. And I've... They're like, well, here comes the creatives. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it definitely has Who's that. entered the building without permission? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, I, but I, I've worked with people on personal brand that yeah. have been in the corporate environment and there is... Maybe it's something I don't understand from not having worked on the inside of these incorporate corporate environments but what we're talking about is like uh, deciding how much we're going to share of ourselves you Mm -hmm. know like the the corporate um, presentation that Mm -hmm. people need to put on versus who they are Mm. Um, on Friday night drinks yeah. and how do we market ourselves? Mm. Do we bring in some of that, you know, real smiley, bubbly, funny or do we need to sort of save face or... I don't think it's a sustainable place no. to be yeah. to fake any part of who you are mm. to try to fit in or belong to a corporate environment. And I think that's part of the discovery that we all make about what kind of culture we want to be a part of and how we want to spend 120 hours of our week. Mm. So that's a great... It's a great place to be to be figuring that out and realise that you you know why would you want to be anyone else you know yeah. Brené Brown has one of my favorite lines and it's about um uh you know be bold enough to be who you are without apology mm. it's that simple yeah I think that for a lot of people it's actually uh trying to work out who you are mm, I think that that's sure. part of it too is it's because in this complex world that we're in and complex humans that we are we have different versions of ourselves and so I think that that is part of it which is like which one am I bringing to this? Um, well, and, and also our interests change, you know, our values strengthen mm. as we get older as well. Yeah. And and we want to be in a place that reflects that, you know, hence my ditching television, you know, um, at that point in time. So when you feel like things are clashing, you know, it's time to move on. And that's a great thing about all of us. We're, we're constantly a work in progress. I love the book. Uh, I love that you've taken, you know, everything you've learned from on the ground mm-hmm. in Iraq and on the ground in DC and taking those experiences and, and sort of rap story with strategy and, mm. and uh, process, which is, I, I love it. It's really practical. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a good mix of that storytelling stuff and then actually having tips that you can walk away with. And no you? sign of resting bitch face here. No, yeah, exactly. look at that. Super friendly <laughs> and approachable. Um, yeah, it was really important that we had, um, you know, that I had a narrative that that led into something that was tactical. Mm. And I, I didn't necessarily start out to write a book that, you know, had exercises in it, but mm. But it's so important for me and as a facilitator, that's so in my nature to give people things that they can apply tomorrow, mm-hmm. you know, in the workplace or in their lives. So, um, but it was important to start with the backstory because because there there were genuinely lessons that I learned from from those sort of interesting incidents. With the, with the cover, yeah. how much thought went into what the cover is <laughs> going to look like? Was it tempting to have a flak jacket sort of uh, <laughs> Hugh Remington style? Hilarious. Uh, it definitely, it definitely wasn't the photographer that did the last photos. Yeah, yeah, no, it was a different yeah, exactly. one. Uh, Ross Coffey, who's incredible. I, um, I struggled to think, how could I illustrate? Mm-hmm. How do you graphically illustrate the future of work? Like, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a graphic design sense, if we weren't going to have my face on the cover, what would that look like? And I felt like the future of work is it's an intimidating, confusing, ambiguous topic for so many people. And so I, I actually had a really long chat to to Belinda and to Bernard Salt, who's my mentor and has been for many years, about 
um, about having my face on the cover and I really felt like as a communicator I love to connect with people and I wanted to have that opportunity. So um, so it was a really, you know, two, two reasons. I, I couldn't – I'm like how do we – how do we do a drawing uh, that's going to that's going to help people understand mm. more about the future of work? How do you illustrate that? It's so difficult. So that was really the the driving force to have making a call just to put my photo on and, and just hope for the best. Yeah. I think it speaks true to your knowledge on personal brand though, because mm. it's hard to connect with if, if you weren't on there just mm. looking at the exactly. work. You know, like that's my point. Yeah. See yeah. you if you've ever worked with you. Yeah, it's. Um, I think it's great. Yeah. There was a few things in there that really connected with me. Yeah. One of them was. Uh, your appreciation of walkie-talkies, which you... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, Tommy's that, always oh, sort yeah, of trolling yeah. me with walkie-talkies. Mate, they, they don't work half the time. Well, <laughs> I, I literally brought... I turned it on and then Mr 97... I was attaching yeah. it to my belt this morning for today's show and Mr yeah. 97 said no and so no. I put it away. So no, no, no walkie-talkie It's a great here. prop though. Yeah, yeah it would have been a good see. I stand well, by it. It was a great, yeah. great prop. But the other thing we have and in common... And it is just a prop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and well, hum- I, yeah. humidity as well. The hater oh. of humidity. Uh, I don't know why uh, Bali is a good location for holidays because I end yeah. up having... Uh, anxiety attacks based on oh, the humidity. I, look, I don't Just care if I'm if I'm on holiday, but if I'm working, you yeah. know, it's impossible for a girl to look great in humidity uh-huh. on camera. It's a it's just a very simple proposition. Uh-huh. Like, forget it. Like, you've got to embrace a new le- level of of um authenticity. You're yeah. speaking Josh's <laughs> language. Yeah, uh, when I when I went on a big trip and we it was summer in a lot of places like Pakistan and yeah, Indonesia, right. and I had some. Uh, Pants like I normally a shorts. I used oh. to be a shorts guy. That okay. was a previous brand, a but brand. um, <laughs> but the uh, yeah the the pant the the, the it was combination one exactly yeah, the combination definitely. of the pants yep. and the humidity was quite a quite a it's stressful. Punishing. Sort of, yeah. It's punishing. And in that circumstance, I was in Cambodia and and shooting a story on landmines. And the problem is, as you guys would know, humidity really impacts your equipment, yeah. mm. and so it shuts it down. It plays up. It's really tricky, and and that's it. Just adds to the frustration of feeling like you're in a steam room wanting to harm yourself. Yeah, it's yeah. not it's not ideal. Yeah, uh, Andrea. Thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure. It'd be great to have you uh, back on soon. You're in Sydney normally. Is that, that yeah. where you're based as well? Great. It's The Daily Talk Show, everyone. Hi, thedailytalkshow.com. Uh, if you want to send us an email, Google Career CEO and you'll see all, all of Andrea's stuff. So we'll see you tomorrow, guys. See you Thanks, guys. guys.